Well, it is officially a new year. In fact, it's officially a new decade even, right? We, we have left behind the 2010s, and in fact, we're now in 2020s. We're going to have to relearn how to write all of our dates and make sure we're not making mistakes. But I, I, I don't know if you are the kind of person who makes New Year's resolutions. Right? I, I know sometimes New Year's resolutions are kind of looked down on because for the most part they end up being you know, something like, well, I'm going to work out more, I'm going to eat better, I'm going, to, I'm going to start this new hobby, and for the most part they get abandoned by about the second week of January, so you know, we're almost there to that point. Right? But, but I kind of hope that you are the person who, who wants to make those New Year's resolutions. The, the reason is because they're, they're, they're quite optimistic, aren't they? It's looking to the future and saying, you know, I, I think this year could go better than the last one. I think things could go even better if, if we make this change. If this happens, then I think it'll actually turn out well. Right? It's the desire that we actually have that says, I want to actually improve my life. I want to improve how things are going. And so actually, that, that's not really a desire that we should uh, shame. Sometimes I think even in the church, we're a little bit wary because we're saying like, well, you know, you really should just be content. You should be content with how things are and what God has given you. And, and I'm not talking about discontentment. Sure, yes, we want to be content, but, but I think there ought to be a, a right desire that says, I think, I think things can get even better. I want to work towards that. That's my goal, right? In fact, actually, I think I think that's a biblical idea. In fact, if you think back to Jesus when He's talking with His disciples, right? His disciples are, are walking behind them and they're all having this little whispered conversation. Oof, I almost stepped off there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> His disciples are back there. They're having this whispered conversation and, and Jesus finally overhears them and says, what are you guys talking about? And they, they kind of sheepishly say, well, we were discussing which one of us could be the greatest. And instead of Jesus kind of saying, that's a terrible thing to want, He says, well, here's how to do it. It's actually by serving others, being the least, being the, being the servant of all. Jesus doesn't, doesn't go after them for that desire. In fact, he, he actually just tells them, here's how to do it. And I think that's kind of how we need to think about our New Year's resolutions. It's not the desire that is wrong to, to see our, our lives grow, get better, and change. I, I think it's the question of how are we going to do it, right? True, exercising, eating right, all of those things are good, but is it genuinely going to make our lives better? The question is how, are, how can this year be greater than the last? So this morning, that, that's what I'd like us to be considering. As we go into 2020, how can 2020 actually have more blessing than last year? So if you have a Bible with you, I'll invite you to open to the book of Revelation, all right? All the way to the end, last book in our Bible, we are going to be looking at the book of Revelation in fact, we're going to be starting a series here, sort of next week we'll be starting it uh, in earnest, looking at the seven letters that are written in the book of Revelation through chapters two and three. So we'll spend a number of weeks walking through that. But, but this morning, I want us to, to get introduced to this book as a whole, to introduce to this letter that is written. And, and I think as soon as we start opening to the book of Revelation, I think two reactions happen. 
One is you either switch off and you're like, oh, I don't even want to talk about that. And the other is like super excited, oh, I can't wait, I'm going to debate everyone, right? Revelation has this very polarizing effect on many people. And if you've been around churches long enough, you, you actually probably even know that this book has often been sort of this hotbed of controversy, and, and, and people haven't just debated over this book, they have fought over this book. Churches have split up and gone their separate ways, all because they couldn't agree on how to interpret this book of the Bible, right? Now, I grew up a little bit missing that. I saw kind of the effects of all of those fights and those wars that went on, and the effect, the fallout that came afterwards is that nobody wanted to talk about Revelation. Nobody wanted to open that book or touch it. And I remember growing up, I had all these questions, and all I knew is that this was a book that got people angry, and I had no idea why. And see, the bigger problem is not just that there were arguments, yeah, yeah we, we got to work on that, but the problem was we've been missing the Word of God. Because the truth is, this is a book that is the most hopeful book in our entire Bible. It's looking forward to what's going to happen and, and how things are actually going to turn out. And so this morning, as we kind of go into a new year, as we walk into this sort of new series, I, I don't want, I'm not looking to argue. I'm not looking for an argument. I want us to actually treasure. I want us to appreciate what God has given to us. Because this book actually has a hope for blessing in the new year. It has a hope for how actually our lives can be blessed this year. So with that being said, I'm going to invite you to follow along with me. We're going to start right at the very beginning of the book of Revelation. Now, I'm going to do something we don't normally do here at Central, but I'm going to invite you, would you stand with me for the reading of the Word of God? I'll invite you, please stand. Here now, brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who, who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen." Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for this book. We thank you for the hope that you give to us. We thank you for the blessing that is promised. Lord, as we begin this year, I, I pray, would we be those who seek after your blessing, who seek to know you more and more, and who seek to obey what you have written for us. 
Lord, I pray now as we open your word, as we walk through it, Lord, would you open our hearts and would you affect and work in us that we might live according to what you have called us to do. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to be looking at these first few verses, and really this is, this is the introduction not just to the first chapter, but it's really the whole book. This is sort of the, the, the prologue, right, the, the background information before you launch into this, this giant book and all that it has to say. And so the first thing we kind of learn here is it's written by a man by the name of John, right? This was John, one of the apostles, one of the disciples, one of those who followed Jesus around. And we know that it's actually written around 93, 94 AD. So that means about 60 years after Jesus lived, died, and rose again. And so if you remember, John was actually quite young at the time when he was following Jesus. He was one of the younger disciples. So John is probably at this point somewhere in his mid to late 70s. He's an old man. And unlike all of the other disciples who have been put to death for their faith and for preaching the gospel, John has not. Instead, he's actually been exiled. He's been sent off to the island of Patmos, and he's been imprisoned there. He's been sent into exile. Patmos was this barren little island right off the coast of, uh, well, in between Turkey and Greece, and there's really nothing there. It was, it was an exile. It was a prison colony for the Romans when they wanted to send someone there so that they couldn't, you know, get in contact with anyone else. And so John is sitting there, and that's where he receives this revelation. He receives this word from God about what is coming up. And so John now writes this letter to the churches who are in Asia, right, who are in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. But more than just a prologue, more than just background information to the book, this, this introduction actually has a purpose. There's, there's a reason for why he is writing it. It's meant to make us actually seek after this blessing from the King of Kings, to seek after his blessing, and really that's the purpose of, of everything that this introduction is about. But I'm probably getting ahead of myself, so let's just back up. Verse 1. Right? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So we learned, for, first of all, we just learned two things. First of all, this is going to be a book that's about the future. Right? It's, about, it's a book that is written about the things that must soon take place. Now, there's been lots of, of, of people wondering how soon is soon, right? Is this like right away or is this going to be a long time? We're now 2,000 years. Is it still soon? Is it, is it going to be a long time after this? And the answer is soon, right? The truth is this is a book about things that, that are actually going to be beyond what we are able to answer. This has a future orientation to it, which makes it so difficult to work through all of the different aspects that are here. Right? If you think about all the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, I mean, it took the disciples even years to even figure out what Jesus had done, and they had watched Him do it, heard Him speak, and still it took them a while. Even when we read the Old Testament and the New Testament, we still miss connections all the time. How much more when they haven't even happened yet? And so this book is going to be somewhat confusing as we walk through it. But we learned something else in this little introduction into this prologue. 
And it's probably the far more important point. It's how we got the book. It's how John came to write this book so that we can read it. We read that it was given by God the Father, and it was given to then Jesus, who gave it to an angel, who gave it to John to write it down so we can read it. And you're thinking, wow, that, that's really complicated. Why, why did he do it like that? Why, why are we talking about that? Does it even matter? The answer is we, we're shown that, we're told that, because actually the author does matter. Who wrote this actually matters. We want to know who it came from. You can think of, first of all, just when Jesus was on the earth, when He was teaching, and people would come up and they would ask Him, hey, when are the end times coming? When are these things going to happen? And His answer was always the same, only the Father knows. And see, John writes this to tell them, actually, that's where this book is coming from. It's actually coming not just from my own imagination, not just from an angel I saw. It's actually coming from God the Father, the one who knows when the end will come, who is actually sovereign over all the world. This is the one who is writing these words. So when we come to this, we can actually come and say, you know what, this is a book that gives me certainty about what's going to happen. This isn't some guy's imagination. This isn't just a plan or a wish list of what could happen. This is what God Himself is going to do. But I think there's another reason why we ought to care about who wrote it. It comes from verse 3. Verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Right? There, there is a blessing for those who, who read, who, who hear, who obey what is being talked about in this book. And the reason that it matters who it comes from is because it's going to change then how we respond to this promise. Right? Th think about it this way. If you get an email into your inbox and it says, you've won a cruise, and just send us your information and we will you know, claim your prize, and you're going like, I've never met you before. This is sent to about 10,000 different people. I'm pretty sure I didn't just win a cruise. Delete, right? But if you got that exact same email from your boss who says, you know what, we've really noticed the, the work that you've been doing this year, and we really want to appreciate that, and so for a Christmas bonus this year, we're going to send you and your family on a cruise. Just send us your information, we'll take care of everything else. See, now that same email looks a lot different, doesn't it? Depending on who it comes from, it's going to change how we respond to that promise. And so the promise of a blessing that is coming from God Himself is a promise we should actually take for granted. It's one we should actually seek after and say, this is for sure. I'm actually going to work at this because God Himself has promised a blessing that's worth actually going after, that's worth chasing after. So seek after this blessing, pursue it, focus on it because it's a sure thing. This is written so that we might have a blessing from God. In fact, we started off this just by asking, how, how can we say that this next year is going to be greater, going to be blessed? And the answer is here. Actually, it's dive deep into the Word of God. Get to know what God has written. Get to know your Bible. Obey His words, and you will be blessed. I'm not saying you're going to be healthier and wealthier. That's not the promise here. 
It's not the promise that you're going to make more money or anything like that. No, in fact, this is a spiritual blessing, a promise from God of eternal value. So much more valuable than a raise or anything else. So dive deep into the Word of God. But you might say, well, but hold on, hold on. Is verse 3 talking about the whole Bible or, or just the book of Revelation? right? Because it says this prophecy, is it talking about everything or, or, or just revelation? Is that the, the one book? Well, I think the answer is yes, both. Both of them are intended. I think John realizes that he is writing the last book of the Bible, and so this becomes kind of that, that end capstone that's going to finish off everything. But I think we could say with even more certainty that there is always a blessing for reading the Word of God. James chapter 1 He says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Again, he says there is a blessing for those who look into the law and do what it says. Luke chapter 11, Jesus says the same thing. He says, but he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Right? Jesus pronounces this blessing. There is, for those who hear the word and obey it, they will find blessing. Now, to be clear, the, the, the blessing is always attached to the obedience, right? It, it's not as if you can just pick up your Bible and scan your eyes across the page and, and somehow you will be blessed as if this was some sort of ritual that God needed to see you doing flipping pages. Oh, yes, all right, he now gets a blessing. No, 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 that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about actually reading, understanding, unknowing, and then carrying it out into your life. You will find blessing in that. And certainly that is where the emphasis is always laying, but, but perhaps we also need to remind ourselves where to start. Actually, to start here with the simple discipline of reading our Bibles and understanding what it has to say. I, I think so often we, we end up saying, yeah, I, I want to obey, but we haven't actually taken the time, the discipline to actually learn what God has said. It's a little bit like, I think, coaching Little League hockey. If you've ever had to do this, you get a bunch of like six-year-olds all geared up with their hockey stuff, and, and you come up and you say, all right, kids, we, we got a game, but, but we can win this one. You guys just got to follow my instructions, okay? And they go, yeah, and they skate off on the ice. And you're like, I didn't tell you what to do yet, right? You got to wait. You got to actually listen to me. And they're like, yeah, we're going. We're going to win. And you're like, ah. I think sometimes that's exactly how God feels with us is that we're like, yeah, it's going to go great, and, and we rush off, and we haven't actually stopped to listen. What is God actually saying? Right? We say, yeah, I want to follow God. Great. Have you listened to Him? Nope. How's it going? Bad. Hmm. I wonder why, right? Okay, maybe that's a little sarcastic, but, but truth is we find ourselves doing that all the time. We find ourselves just simply assuming, well, we know and so we ignore what God says, and we do what we think God says. But we haven't actually paused to set ourselves, say, here is what the Word of God says, and here is how I can obey. We're surprised when we find ourselves feeling lost, feeling hopeless, feeling abandoned, feeling overwhelmed with life, and when we struggle, and when we haven't been investing ourselves into the Word of God. So can I encourage, can I challenge you this year? 
dive deep into your Bibles. Dive deep into knowing the Word of God. Make it a priority. Put it in your schedule. Actually protect some time so that you have a moment to read and fill yourself, fill your day with God's Word. And then actually begin to put it into action. Take what you've read and just find something, one point. It doesn't need to be massive. It doesn't need to be life-changing every single time, but say, here's one way in which I can follow God today, right? If you think of a sculpture, a sculpture has big, massive strokes, but there's a thousand tiny details in it, right? Don't be discouraged if you're working on the details for a few days. God will use every single bit, Hebrews 4 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In fact, God's Word accomplishes all that it sets out to do and will not return empty. See, if there's any desire in you that you're saying, I want this year to go well, I want this year to be a blessed one, can I say, take this promise as gold, that there is actually a blessing for those who would seek to know God through His Word, comes from God Himself, and He will bless those who read, hear, and obey, seek after this blessing. See, this is what God, or this is what John and God. God is encouraging all those to do, to hear what He has written, to seek the blessing from God Himself. But, but John doesn't just stop there. In fact, he begins to now unfold this God who has made this promise, the one who is going to bless. He wants us to behold the triune God. Look back with me at verse 4. Verse 4 says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is, who was, and who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. Right? He begins to unpack who this God is. And He says, first of all, I want to just tell you, there is grace and peace from this God. And then he begins to just unfold the greatness of who God is. And the first thing he says is, this is the God who is, who was, and who is to come. Right? This is an eternal God who has always existed. He always was, He always is, and He always will be. He does not change the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. In fact, this description of God might, might sound a little bit familiar to you. In fact, it, it really should. See, it comes from the Old Testament and comes even from the very name of God Himself. If you remember the story of Moses and the burning bush, right? God, God comes and He speaks to Moses through this burning bush and God says, I'm going to send you, Moses, to go rescue my people out of slavery in Egypt and you're going to bring them out and I'm going to save them. And, and Moses says, well, okay, what if they ask me your name? What, what should I say? So Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. See, I am is God's covenant name, but, but you're going to notice there's a little footnote on that verse. There's a little footnote if, if you're reading the ESV or on the screen. Um, 
And it tells you that this name of God, I am who I am, can be translated in a couple of different ways. It, It can be translated as I am what I am or I will be what I will be. See, the reason it's hard to translate that is because the, the, the language, the wording is somewhat ambiguous. It could be taken as this present I am or, or a little bit of a past I, I am what I am or, or, or kind of a future I will be what I will be. The intention there is we're meant to see God as eternal. And so when John is now describing this God, he uses the language of Exodus, uses this covenantal name of God to remind Whew, almost made it. He uses this name to remind the people that actually God is the one who saves. You see, the people he's writing to, the churches he's writing to are starting to undergo persecution. They're starting to be attacked for their faith, and they're starting to actually feel that he, John himself is sent into exile because this has started. And so he's writing back to them, and he reminds the churches, this is your God who delivers his people out of persecution. This is the one you are to see, the eternal God who saves. But he continues on, and he says, you will have grace and peace from God the Father and the seven spirits who are before His throne. And you read that and you think, okay, what? (laughs) The seven spirits, who are they? Where did that come from? That seems like a really bizarre thing to add into this little introduction. So, So why does He do that? Well, see, what we might not recognize, at least at first, is that John is actually here, again, quoting from the Old Testament. He's making an allusion back to Zechariah chapter 4. And I know all of you are going, oh, well, that makes sense. (laughs) Okay, maybe not, all right? So, Zechariah chapter 4, very obscure passage, at least to most of us. But Zechariah receives this vision for his king. This is back in the Old Testament. And Zechariah receives this vision of these seven candles, or not candles, lamps and lampstands, and all of this stuff is going on, and he says, I don't understand what I'm looking at. So he asks, can you explain this to me? And so Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6 says this, then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, the king, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So here's what we're meant to understand. God here is using this image of seven different lit lamps to represent His one Holy Spirit. And I think John is using that framework as an illusion and weaving it into his message to the churches to talk about God's ability to save. But he continues on and he says of Jesus, He says, you will have grace and peace from Jesus, calls him the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. And at this point, you're probably thinking, you know what, that probably is from the Old Testament too. And you're right. In fact, it's Psalm 89. It talks about the throne of the king, of the Messiah. It says, like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Again, in that Psalm, it says of the Messiah, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. John is saying Jesus is actually the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies. In fact, He is the one who is reigning over all. Now, if you are sitting here and you're thinking, 
that just went right over my head. <laughs> that was so many different things, and I'm not sure where all of that is coming from. Let, let, me, let me say, first of all, welcome to the book of Revelation. That's how everyone feels reading this book, all right? There's tons of this. That was a verse and a half, and there's at least three, if not four, Old Testament allusions and probably two New Testament ones. There's 22 chapters in this book. This is a dense book. There's lots and lots in it. But, but let me give you the encouragement, all right? If you're feeling like, oh, I'm so lost, I'm not going to get anything. Here, let me give you the encouragement. Just because the ocean is deep doesn't mean you can't enjoy the beach, all right? Just because the ocean is deep and you'll never get to the bottom doesn't mean there is no enjoyment, there is nothing to be had. In fact, that's exactly how I think we ought to look at the book of Revelation. Yeah, it's deep, and people have spent years and tons of time diving into this and still saying, I don't understand everything, but that doesn't mean there is nothing for us here today. So what, what is for us? If you're here and you're thinking, well, what does this, any of this mean? There's no way I would have gathered all of that information. Well, let's start here. You could probably start with the description of God and you'll say, well, you know what? I, I think that means that God was with me yesterday and He'll be with me today and that He'll even be with me tomorrow as well. God has walked me through everything in my past. He knew what was going on and He is with me here today. And in fact, tomorrow and the rest of this year, I know my God will be with me. He is enough for me. He is not going to be surprised by anything that happens in this coming year. In fact, He knows it already and He will walk with me each and every day. I can trust this God you might not know why there are seven spirits before His throne, but you might come to the conclusion and say, you know, I don't know why, but it seems like God has plenty of help. So maybe if I come before His throne, I can find that help as well. In fact, I don't know why Jesus is described the way He is, but it says He's the ruler over all the kings on earth. So maybe that means when I turn on the news at night, that actually what I'm looking at isn't chaos, just unbridled, unhinged everything, but in fact, Jesus is holding the reins, and I can be assured that at the end of the day, He's going to be in control. So I don't need to understand every single little detail this book has to understand the point that our God is sovereign, He is reigning over all, that we can actually trust Him that there is in fact so much hope packed into these verses as we behold the greatness of our God as we trust in this King over all other kings. And see, here's really the final thing I want us to see this morning. It's the description of this King, this loving and terrible King. Now, I'm using that word terrible there, not, not to talk about how bad he is at his job, and talking about it in the fact that He is terrifying. That, that the description we have here of Jesus is both lovely and, and terrifying at the exact same time. Look back with me at the second half of verse 5. It says, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him, even so, amen. 
Okay, it's a bit of a shocking description, isn't it? Or at least maybe one different than we would expect. We expect the first half a little bit. We expect this Jesus who comes to us, who is, who is loving, who has freed us from our sins, who has died in our place, and well, we should. We should respond as John does here and say, glory and dominion to Him forever, to the one who loved us so much that He would not leave us in our sins, but in fact came to earth to die in our place, to pay that punishment that we couldn't pay, so we would be free. Yes, amen, this is our God but we might not expect that second half. Goes on, verse 7 is a very different, at least in the reaction of people, will be very different. It says, all the tribes of the earth will wail, or, or some of your translations might say mourn on account of Him. Those are two very different reactions, and I think that's what we're meant to see. See, we're just coming out of the Christmas season, and Christmas is a time where, where we remind ourselves of the birth of Jesus. And it's this picture of Jesus that, that is rightfully lovely and precious and beautiful. It is this picture of Jesus, meek and mild, whole, or lowly and humble. He comes to us in obscurity, and He is pronounced and praised by shepherds, by, by no one. And we, we come to, to think about Jesus in these terms of meek and mild, and certainly as we read through the Gospels, there are times where that is exactly how Jesus is, gentle and caring. But if we think that's the only picture of Jesus, we haven't come to know Him fully. When Jesus returns, He will not return in a manger. He will not return in obscurity. He will not return in lowliness. No, in fact, He's coming back and every eye will see Him and He will be on a war horse. In fact, it will be a very different coming when Jesus returns. He is coming as the King over all kings. He will have dominion. He will, uh, those who looked on Him, who pierced Him, will wail and mourn, those who opposed Him. See, the return of Jesus will be both a lovely and a terrifying experience. It depends on where you're sitting. See, I think the Apostle Paul gives us a great analogy in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, he says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. See, Paul gives this analogy of the Romans returning from battle. They, they would come back into the city and there would be this giant parade, this processional of all the soldiers who were returning victorious from battle. And, and during that time, they would be lighting incense and the entire city would smell. You could just, as you walked in, it would be like a wall that you hit and boom, it would hit your nose and you just immediately smell it. And the returning soldiers would smell that and that was the smell of life and victory and defeat, or not defeat, and freedom but they would bring with them their prisoners. 
And for the prisoners, it was not a smell of life. In fact, it was the smell of loss. It was the smell of slavery and the smell of death. See, the very same thing had two very different reactions. In fact, that's, I think, what John is getting at here. The return of Christ will be met with two very different reactions. To one, it is the loveliest, the most glorious thing, and the other shall wail and mourn. To those who love Him, who have been saved, freed from our sins, who trust in His death, it is the aroma of life and victory. But it will also be a time of mourning. It just depends on where you're sitting. But here's the good news. The good news is that that is not today. In fact, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day where God has grace on all. Today, uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says, working together with Him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Yeah, there, there's a day when Jesus is going to come back on a war horse. But today, today is a day of salvation. Today is a day of salvation, of being freed from our sins, from anyone who would turn to Him and trust in Him, who would repent of their sins and simply place their faith in Jesus Christ to the one who loves us, who sent Jesus to die in our place so that we would not perish but have eternal life with Him. That salvation is open to all here today. That blessing is for us. And so this morning as we close, I want to encourage you. Would you seek after this blessing? from the King of kings, from the God who is over all? Would you seek to know Him by faith, repent of your sins and trust in Him? Would you dive yourself deeper into the Word so that you might know Him more and more, reading, hearing, and obeying what God has to say to us? Maybe you're not the type of person who makes New Year's resolutions. Maybe that's not really you. But, but can I ask that you would try, that you would make this commitment to know God more and more, make a plan to actually spend part of your day reading His Word. I know life is always full of distractions, right? If you've got kids, you're thinking to yourself, I don't have time. I don't have time to myself anymore. That is long gone. I'm not saying you need to take three hours every day, but can you find 10 minutes? You find 10, 15 minutes just to spend reading the Word of God, getting to know Him more and more. Find a good reading plan, right? It, it, I've, I've tried the, I'll open up and try and figure out what to read at the time, and it doesn't work, at least not for very long. Find a good reading plan. If you don't have one, come talk to me. I'll give you the one I'm using. I've got lots of different ones. Find someone who can walk through it with you, can hold you accountable, join into a life group and actually get accountability around you so that this can be part of your life because it will be the most important part of your day. Learn to put what you read into practice and actually obey what God calls us to do. Come to know our God, the one talked about in the very last verse of our passage. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Would you come to know this God? who is, was, and is to come, the beginning and the end, the one who knows tomorrow, who will be with you through it all, the almighty, the sovereign ruler over everything. Let us seek His blessing this year. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much, Lord, that You have looked on us with love, that you have not simply abandoned us or or left us to our own devices, but you sent Jesus here to be with us so that we might be redeemed, so that we might be freed from our sins. Oh, Lord, I I pray, would you help us focus on you? Would you help us long to receive the blessing that only comes from you? Lord, I pray, would would you give us your holy word that we might live the way you have called us to, that we might read, hear, and obey what you have for us. We ask these things in your name. Amen.